you? I needed to visit my brother. I haven't seen him for years. And he's 85, 83. Yeah. So it's time I spent time with him. Uh, when I arranged about coming down and uh, I was invited to come here, I thought it would be not inappropriate to cover messages that are relevant to what we are facing in the nation. And that is the issue of foundations. Once the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So there is a destruction taking place of our foundations and things are crumbling around us in the nation and even unbelievers are deeply concerned at what is lies ahead possibly for their children. We notice that people are worried about well, what does the future hold for my children because there seems to be no light ahead. It's just downhill all the way. So I thought it would be best in the time where I have with you to cover the issues we are facing. So what I'm going to do is take you tonight, if you'll take your Bibles, we'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 18, the end of the chapter, which lays the foundation for our understanding of what is actually happening. Peter 3 from verse 1 down to the end of the chapter, verse 18. He wrote, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised, Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. 
and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort or twist, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's bow in prayer before we come to the word of God. Father, as we step into your scriptures, which speak to us of the kind of world we find ourselves living in, Speak to us of the reality of what is going on in the day we find ourselves. We ask, Lord, that your word will illuminate our hearts with understanding. You'll open our eyes. You'll make us realise clearly that you're sovereignly in control of what is happening here. And the future lies securely in your hands, not in man's. We ask, Lord, that your word tonight will be precious to our hearts. Open our eyes, we pray, by your Holy Spirit and give us a burden and a desire to see salvation take place in the time that is left before you come. Commit our time to you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. History is very like science. There are certain requirements for history. If something is to go be history, then it must have three distinct requirements. There is an event that takes place, it must be observed, and it is equated to a date, a fixed time. The Bible is history. From beginning to end, the whole history of our world is in this book. It starts at the beginning, and you can't go back before the beginning. In the beginning, we start there, and we are consummated when we get to the end of Revelation, we understand the last two chapters deal with the final um, eternal abode of God and man. God is dwelling with man. So there is a panorama given to us in scripture of the whole history that belongs to our world in which we find ourselves. But in the day in which we find ourselves now, 
the Bible speaks with a great burden concerning the conditions that precede the coming of the Lord Jesus. And by that coming, I am talking about his coming to earth, to the nation of Israel. There are conditions that will precede that coming. And we are watching things unfold in the world around us in very rapid succession. I want to point our thoughts tonight to two things that mark the fact that we are viewing things and realising the day is approaching when he is going to come. Two things, and I want to focus on them tonight. The first is Israel. So when we come to the nation of Israel itself, <coughs> we live in a time when we are seeing taking place before our eyes something that God has written into his word. The characteristic of scripture is this. Prophecy is what God says will happen through his prophets. Holy men of God speak as they're moved by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God-breathed. So we come to the scriptures themselves and we realise we are dealing with the prophetic utterances way back from the beginning, from the time of Abel on. Abel is the first prophet. From that time on, we are dealing with prophetic utterances right through the scriptures and the characteristic of the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament is this. Starting from Abraham, God told him the future of his nation before it ever happened. He outlines clearly 400 years of history that lies ahead of Abraham and goes beyond the 400 years with him and points out they will come back to the land. So he outlines clearly to this nation their future for over 400 years. Then you come to Moses and Moses in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 details clearly to the nation of Israel what they will do when they go into the land God has promised them. And he tells them, you are going to turn away and you're going to start worshipping idols and you're going to do the things that the nations I've driven out from you are doing. You're going to do them. And God is going to scatter you through the world. That's history. That has happened. And we look back over 2,000 years from the time of Titus when he destroyed Jerusalem to the final scattering of the Jews all over the world from that time. So we have looked at a nation that was scattered as a people all over the world. Question is, has God finished with that nation? Is that the end of all that? Now there are major prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'm going to rapidly take you through some of the comments, these prophecies of these major prophets to show how God foretells still what lies ahead for this nation not dealing with the Gentiles, he is dealing with the issue of the nation of Israel. So take your Bibles and turn first to Jeremiah 33. We 
listening to the prophetic word of God on these matters. <coughs> so we're in Jeremiah 33. We're down in verse 2. We are told the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. Verse 2. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. That's the name that he identified himself by when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. When God sent Moses to deliver them, he said, by my name of God Almighty was I known to Abraham, but by my name, the Lord, I will make myself known to you. So behind this here is the operating principle upon which God works, and that is his power. Every time in your Bible that God announces he's going to do something, and he wants to justify us believing it is because he made heaven and earth. And we identify God, the one we worship, is it took his power to do that. In six days, everything, including the whole angelic world, the whole universe, every living thing, and everything that was created was made in six literal days. Fixed the time. He wrote it with his finger on the rock. When he'd finished giving everything to, to um, Moses up in the mountain, he ready to come down. He repeated himself as though to say, don't make a mistake, it was six days. So we come to this amazing power of God that did everything. And he spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood fast. Let all the earth fear him. Let all the people stand in awe of him. So when I find whenever God's going to do something that it seems impossible to happen. And Jeremiah has questioned God because Jeremiah has prophesied under the Spirit of God and told Israel what's going to happen to them. The city's going to be destroyed, you're going to be driven out, the Babylonians are going to come in and the whole thing is destruction. And God tells him, you go and your, your cousin is coming down and he's going to offer a piece of land, you buy it. Why buy land when this is what's going to happen? Why purchase a piece of land, pay the price for it, do everything, and you've told me to prophesy total destruction, the people are driven all over the world according to what God tells Jeremiah. And he says, why do this? And that's where you get the statement of Jeremiah. <coughs> this is his reaction. Oh, Lord God! You made the heavens and the earth by your outstretched arm and your mighty hand. Nothing's too difficult for you. But you've asked me to do this. You've asked me to purchase a piece of land. What are you doing? So when God talks to Jeremiah, he says the same thing. Notice your wording in verse 2. He says this. This is what the Lord says. Notice, he who made the earth and formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Meaning, you understand my power, you did all this, now God says to him, this is the word of the Lord to you, Jeremiah, I made heavens and the earth. It's my power. So this is what God says here. Call to me, notice we will often 
use this text, but this is the context. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. He's addressing Jeremiah. Jeremiah has prophesied under the Spirit of God of what lies ahead and it looks dark and hopeless for the nation of Israel, for its land and for its people, for its temple and its city. It looks hopeless. He's had to prophesy and he hasn't been liked for what he said. And God says to him, call unto me, I will answer you with great and amazing things. He says, unsearchable things you do not know. Now you go down in your text in verse 6. He speaks of the destruction because of what Jeremiah had to say in verse 6. Nevertheless, that's what you've prophesied unto me, I will bring health and healing to it, the land. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. Imagine that. I will. If you've got a Bible, I will, I will, I will. They are called promises. Promises made to the nation of Israel. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. So what are you looking back on? You're looking back on Solomon. You're looking back on 40 years of peace. You're looking back on an amazing time in Israel when for 40 years no nation could touch them. He said, I'll do better than I did in former times, he tells them later. He said, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me. Man, tell me, what have these people done? Well, God says, I sent you prophets. You killed them. You stoned them. I sent them repeatedly. You did all this. And finally, God says, I'll send them my son. They will reverence him. When they saw the son, they said, come, this is the heir, let's kill him. Inheritance is ours. God says, I will cleanse them from all their sin they have done against me. Seventy times seven is a very strong word in scripture. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven? And Jesus' answer was, no, Peter, not seven. 70 times 7, meaning the measure of my forgiveness to the nation of Israel and all they have done to me is the measure you are going to show to those whom you are going to have to forgive who will do all manner of things against you. That's what it means. So the measure of forgiveness, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Jesus is dwelling on that principle. So when we come to this here, this is what it says. I'll forgive all their sins of rebellion against me, then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honour before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it and they will be in awe and they will tremble at the abundance of prosperity and peace I provide for it. There's still much to happen, isn't there? God is telling him. He's dealing with a nation. Not an individual, a nation. And he's telling what will happen. You go down further. This, and I've underlined in my, my, my uh, Bible, this is what the Lord says. 
and he says, what you say about this place. But if you go down, he says this <coughs> in verse 12. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate, without men or animals, in all its towns, there will again be pastures for sheep, shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Tell me, that looks like a very prosperous nation, doesn't it? A prosperous nation that is able to sacrifice again, which they will do. Even though Jesus has completed the sacrifice at Calvary, they're going to look back in memory, in recognition of what he did at that cross. There will be a temple built, not the one they're building now, or they're planning to build. The dimensions, pattern, and everything is given to you in Ezekiel, from chapters 40 to 48. And God tells Ezekiel, you note, you take it all down, and you tell the people, this is the pattern. And you have an amazing pattern laid out from Ezekiel 40 to 48. God's presence left in, in Ezekiel 10. The presence of God left the city. But in Ezekiel 40 on, the presence of God comes back to the city. And you have a head for the world itself. Israel as a nation will be the head and not the tail. It has been the tail for a long time. But there is coming a time when, is, when God will deal with that nation and use them as a testimony to the rest of the world. But first, he must bring them back in unbelief, which they have come back for the most part. But finally, he's going to cleanse them from all the evil they have done against him. And he will tell them, I don't do this for your sake. I do it for my great name's sake. That's why I do it. The reason he brought them out of Egypt was to make a name for himself. All the nations knew. Rahab knew. In Jericho, they all knew what had happened. Forty years in the wilderness, preserved by God, crossed the Red Sea, delivered out of Egypt. They all knew. And the fear of them fell on the nations. And God, the Bible says God made a name for himself. The honour was due to God for what he did. Well, God still wants honour for his name amongst the nations. The only true and living God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And there is a trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that all men should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. So the whole worship is Godward. And it's interesting when you're doing Revelation and you're in chapter 4 and you're at the throne of God, <coughs> you will have the whole Trinity present that's there. But you get to the end of the chapter and you're verse 11 and you say, and this is the God who created all things. Everything was made by him for his pleasure. For your pleasure, they are and were created. It was the whole thing is to draw honour and glory to God. You lose the sense of who God is 
and you lose your ability to worship and you lose the fear of God. So in in the scripture here, there is an unveiling to Jeremiah of what the future holds and it's accurate. It will happen just as God told Jeremiah. Now when you come to Jeremiah, (coughs) Jeremiah links back to what separates God from every other object of worship in this world. Take your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 5. This separates God out and it's consistent through Scripture. Jeremiah 5 and we're in verse 22. God reminds us of the immensity of his power in doing things. Jeremiah 5 verse 22, he says, Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? Why should we, because it's addressed as much to us as to the people of Israel, should you not tremble in my presence? Why should I tremble in the presence of God? because the revelation of the immensity of his power. The absolute control he has of what he's made. Everything is under his hand. So where did he demonstrate it? Notice your wording. I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. What's he talking about? Never again Never again, never again. It is my covenanted promise to Noah, his sons and all generations after, never what I have done will ever happen again. He set the sand a boundary. You will have tsunamis, but it returns back. It doesn't cover the earth and that's what God is talking about. He said, I've set the bounds there. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. Does God keep his covenanted promise? He does. So when you're in the book of Revelation and you've dealt with the churches, chapters 1, 2 and 3, you get into chapter 4 of Revelation, what does John see? A throne. One seated on the throne. And the characteristic of that throne, the one seated there, it is a rainbow circled throne. Meaning, On that throne is a covenant making God and a covenant keeping God. So from Revelation 4 to 19 on earth, God is going to show he made a covenant with Israel and he will keep that covenant. The land is yours. It's an everlasting covenant. So you can wonder today why there is such unrest in the whole of the Middle East. There's only one object in view, the nation of Israel. That's the cause of all the problems, isn't it? That's what we're told. So when we come to scripture here, we are reminded there is an immensity about God. The flood happened and God was in control of the flood. And he's a covenant-making God, that flood, and he's covenant-keeping. Now here lies the difference between God and every other object of worship. Take your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 10. Because this is repeated in the book of Jeremiah, it tells us its importance. Firstly, Jeremiah 10, and we read verse 6. 
Is this the comment we have today in our understanding? No one is like you, O Lord. Now, when we read, we don't read, O Lord. We say, O Lord. That's how it's written. It's an exclamation of wonder. O Lord. So when you come to this here, he's saying, no one's like you. O Lord. That is the understanding. He is the Lord. His whole name is upheld by his works. The works of the Lord are great, searched out by all those who take pleasure in them. So when you come to Scripture, and we are told, we are to tell the next generation the works of the Lord. We are not to hide the works of the Lord. And as we look back over history, of the world itself we're living in, we have a work of God that stands as the greatest judgment this world will ever know by water. Final one will be fire. But water is used the first time for a cataclysmic destruction of a world because of sin. Shouldn't it be in our memory? Shouldn't it register with us? The history of our world has the greatest evidence of a worldwide, totally destructive flood. In an ark, eight people were saved, and that's all. That is an event that was meant to be in the mind of all our children, the generations to come. You tell them what happened. You don't hide it from your children. So you and I have been born into a world or it's no longer in the memory. It's wiped out, pushed out. But it is the greatest event and God told us to tell our children and those children would tell their children. If you've ever been in the islands and you have no written language and carried over from the time they had no written language, you know what they do? To remember, they'll tell something, then they'll repeat it, then they'll repeat it, then they'll repeat it, till it's fixed in your mind, that story. So they do it. We were meant to fix in the minds of our children the events that have happened in the world in which we find ourselves to remind them of who God is and what he's done. The works are great. So when you come to this here, it says, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great. And your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? And in all their kingdoms, there's no one like you. Remember, this is written with every nation has its idols. Every nation has its idols. Abraham was an idol worshipper. And God called him out from worshipping idols to worship the living and the true God. Stephen put his defence this way. He said, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram. That's when he said, come out. And the promises were made. So we are coming to the understanding of this. So you go across in your text and you're in Genesis, Jeremiah 10 and verse 11. Speaking of idols, <coughs> these other nations. Verse 11, tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. 
Why? God is imperishable, he's invisible, he's immortal and he's eternal. But the gods who did not make these heavens and the earth are going to perish from under these heavens and the earth. But I'll give you the whole summary of the Bible in three verses. Take your Bible, turn to Psalm 102, verse 25. This is the summary, the panoramic view of the God we worship as far as his absolute control is concerned. Psalm 102. We're in verse 25. We go right back to the very beginning of our Bible and we are told what happened. And this is addressed, the Father is actually addressing the Son because we're told that in the book of Hebrews. So the Father says to the Son, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth. So the Son is being addressed by the Father. So the whole earth and its formation was done by the Son. He spoke and it was. The heavens are the work of your hands. The heavens are the work of your hands. How big are the heavens? How big is your hand? You can't measure the heavens and scientists admit that now. God said to the, in Jeremiah, he says, if you can measure the heavens, he said, then this nation will cease to exist before me. And man has admitted he cannot measure the heavens. They are too big. He cannot understand the heavens. So when you come to this here, his hand formed the heavens. When you're reading, there's an, every psalm is, is, is unique in scripture every psalm. But there's one psalm that is amazing and they all have their uniqueness. But Psalm 8 starts with... I've got to think. Oh <laughs> uh, Lord, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And finishes with, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And in the, in the middle of it, David is lying in his back in the night looking after sheep and looks up and he says, when I consider the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? Notice David, the moon and the stars you have ordained, they're yours. You made them by creation, they're yours. When I consider them, what's man that you even think on him? So we have, and in coming to the scripture, we have this. These gods that did not make the heavens and the earth are going to perish from under the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the works of your hands. Notice in your text in Psalm 102, they will perish. And we read that in Peter. They're going to depart with a great noise. They're going to melt with fervent heat. They will perish. He spans the whole panorama of Scripture in these verses. Beginning to end, he says, they will perish, but you remain. Your years will never end. You are eternal in being. That's the sun. 
that all men should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. What a position he is to have in our worship. As much as we honour the Father, in equal manner we are to honour the Son. Same honour to the Holy Spirit. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, holy and harmony. So we come to scriptures, and this is repeated in Jeremiah 51, it repeats this. If it didn't repeat it, I wouldn't take too much notice. But when he says it in Jeremiah 10, and he says the same thing in Jeremiah 51, same wording, it's important. It's telling us, you can't be idol worshippers. Mother Nature is not in control. Are we clear? And we have been brainwashed by media, by constant hearing that Mother Nature caused this, Mother Nature did this, and there is no understanding of the attributes of God nor of the sovereign control of the Almighty over the affairs of this world. Nothing happens on this earth except the council in heaven decides it. And no wonder Paul said, um, Isaiah says, Jeremiah says, no, Isaiah says, you have not stood in the counsel of the Lord or you would have turned my people away from their sin. To the prophets, you didn't stand in the counsel of God, listening to what he's counseling. Or you would have turned my people away from their sin and so the judgment would not come upon them. Read in its Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, he accuses the prophets. So when we come to this area here, it's the understanding of who God is. So the greatest event the world has ever known is the flood. So what happens when you come to the day in which you live now? We read a text and it said, Dear friends, I want to remind you, this is the second letter I'm writing, I want to stir up your pure, in King James, pure minds by way of remembrance. Remember, that is, pull from your memory what God has done in the past. Remember it. And he says, I want to remind you, recall, remember, the words of the prophets, the holy prophets, that's your Old Testament, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the New Testament, remember their words. What did they say? There's a consistent and systematic testimony of the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. First of all, you must understand in the last days there's going to be scoffers and mockers. Now you say, there's always been. And it's true. There's always been scoffers and mockers. The difference here is the accuracy of Peter's prophecy. They will say, everything goes on as it always has. This world has never seen divine judgment. That's what they'll teach. And that is called in geology and biology uniformitarian teaching. It's uniform. Never been a disaster across the world like that. Never happened in the world. So tell me, is it true? Is that what's taught in the knowledge of the world today? They teach all about a totally destructive event 
that only left eight people alive in the whole world. Is that what they teach? No way. You won't hear it. It's not heard. In fact, the Bible says they deliberately forget, meaning it is in the memory, but they don't want to keep it in their memory. They deliberately forget. If you've got the NIV, they willfully ignore. The evidence is there, but we ignore it. We don't want that evidence. So there's two actions in your interpretations. Deliberately forget or willfully ignore. Now, I can tell you this. I've just, and I left my material. My bag was too heavy. I left it all with a church I'd just been in teaching. There is an excellent book out called The Authenticity of Scripture by Bill Cooper. Bill Cooper wrote a book that gave the history of the British people through the Bible, where we came from, all this, uh, and he traced it all through. But he spent years on the authenticity of Scripture because I travel in Bible colleges and have to teach in them and I know what is taught when you come to Genesis about there's all these documents, P, P document, G document, which I don't teach anything about. I just teach the Bible as it is. But this has, it's called higher criticism. It's entered every Bible college and it puts doubt upon the scriptures. That's what it does. It creates doubt in Bible colleges. So this book is an amazing, it addresses those whole issues, but at the last part of the book, it's a big book, last part of the book, all over the world, including Australia, the Aborigines, Fiji, Tahiti, all the places I travel in, there is collected, and these are only a small sample, from those nations that have no written language, when the translators go in, the linguistics go in, they take the stories of the people. So it puts in there the stories and they're just chosen out. And there's one in the Australian Aborigines. You can see it. It's not exact, but you can see it. It's all there about the creation, the flood and the scattering of the nations at Babel. It's all there in the story. It's all mixed up, but you can see it. It's, it's not exact like the Bible, but it's there. From all over the world, every continent of the world, time after time. And so I'm interested when I read, say, Tahiti. I read about Tararoa, the creator god. I read about Tane, half man, half god. I read about Oro, the god of power, which is counterfeit of Father, Son and Holy Spirit because they were in a bamboo cover called a mobile ark and Mare was the place of worship. They had an altar, they sacrificed pigs, dogs and humans. They had an Ari, a priest, dressed in garments of glory and beauty. All this, counterfeit of the tabernacle and all that went on. And so as I go through and I'm, I'm conscious of all what's going on in the nations of the Pacific particularly and I pick this up and I'm picking up you know, story, legend, all this. And he's showing you that they carried in their memory from Babel what happened there. That's why your Bible says in Deuteronomy, go to your fathers and ask them. When I scattered the people from, from confusion of the nations, I did it according to the number of children of Israel that went down into Egypt. Genesis chapter 10, the list of the nations and their names. So God has put into the Bible the whole history. To willfully ignore means you deliberately forget. It's there, it's in the memory 
And the sad part is, it's in the memory of these nations, not influenced by the Bible because they had no written material. When, when the missionaries went into Fiji, they, had, they, they chose one dialect out of the rest, 13, 14, they bow on dialect and they put it down into scripture. And that's characteristic of all the nations they've done across the Pacific. Vanuatu there, there's still a massive amount of work to be done in Bible translation. Vanuatu originally had 150 languages in that small island group. Greater concentration than Papua New Guinea. It's about 700 to 800 in Papua New Guinea. And they're still translating. Why? To put it into the original language. But they take the stories of these people consistently. They have in their message, people were saved. There was a great flood. And there was some kind of vessel by which they were saved. There are three things that are consistent with every story across the world. Why? We have a common origin. And when we scattered, we carried the memory with us. Now your Bible says, in the last days, they will deliberately forget, willfully ignore, it ever happened. Is that true? That is what has happened. So how important is the flood in the memory of a nation? You read some of the, uh, in the back there is privilege, you get the book, you can read the Aboriginal, some of the Aboriginal stories and some of them are so near your Bible in account, you, there's no mistaking it. My parents were up in Mornington Island and I remember going out with the Aborigines because the little people used to be there before they were there and they were going to take me to where the little people were but I never got there. <laughs> but you understand, they carried the memory they just passed it on. What do we do? We have the same requirement that the next generation may not forget. We pass on the memory of what actually happened. We believe this book is the history of our world. It actually happened. And it happened as it was written. This is not a setup of taking... <coughs> idle stories from nations and putting them all together till we got a Bible. This is Holy Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the origin of our record. So we have a reliable book which tells us the actual history of the world we live in and from that history we were meant to learn who God is what he's like, what his values are, and it's all there. Remove it, and the structure collapses. Our whole value system is based on the first 11 chapters of the book in your Bible called Genesis. It's all based there. And there's not one educational institution in your world today that doesn't have to mention millions of years even a Christian college may present a creation account, but it will deal with millions of years, dinosaurs, all kinds of things will be brought into the mind. And in the minds of your young people, questions rise. Doubts are there. They're sown by what they hear. And once that happens, they begin to question 
the whole of the book. If you sow a doubt, you will reap a departure. My wife was serving in the library and when we were in Fiji in the Assembly of God Bible College. And she said to the students one day, when you are reading a book that criticizes the Bible, put it down. Faith comes by the word of God, not by criticizing what it says. So we come to a very important area. I've covered with you something of the importance, I think, of the question of the flood and what's there. God has dealt with Israel. He's scattered them. He's gathering them in our generation. He is gathering them back into the land. And if he's gathering them back into the land, it means an unknown date ahead of us, seven years, of events as listed in the book of Revelation will take place on the earth. And as accurate as he is with the nation of Israel, he is accurate with us and he says to us in the last days, there's going to be scoffers and mockers and they'll walk after their own evil desires, meaning they will not turn from the pathway they are on, they will serve the lusts of their flesh. They'll be driven by the lusts of their flesh. And he says, they're going to say, where's this coming? And the reason they'll say it is, nothing ever happened in the past. And one of the problems we face today is a lot of our young people in churches are saying, you've told us the Lord is coming, you've said he's coming such and such a time, you said this is going to happen, and it didn't happen, so skepticism has come in. And if there was ever a day when it was absolutely necessary to be faithful in our handling of Scripture concerning the second coming of Christ, whether for the church or to the nation of Israel, it is now. We cannot afford to breed skepticism amongst the people of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and you cannot set a date, and it's time we learnt that's true. You cannot set a date. And yet we have lived through time after time after time when it was supposed to happen and when it didn't, then scepticism develops. True? I'll just take you through one area before I finish. I could go all night on. One of the things that really moved me was this. What is the real purpose of prophecy? Why is there prophecy? Now take your Bible, I'm going to take you through the Gospel of John. Firstly, John chapter 2. We're learning from Jesus and what he says. John chapter 2. Some of this is very familiar to you, but I will, I will go through it. <coughs> John chapter 2, you are early in the ministry of Jesus. It's the first Passover. He will celebrate <coughs> like this. So, he's been commissioned to his ministry and in the first Passover, before it starts, he goes into the temple and he turns the tables over, he drives them out. 
temple. And so they asked him, by what, who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority? So he says this, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? That is John 2 and verse 18. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, this temple's been 46 years in building and you raise it up in three days. He never gave any light. He just left it stand. But you'll notice as you go down in the text, these are the words. We'll read from verse 20. Jesus replied, the Jews replied, it has been taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Interesting. Is he prophetic? When he says, destroy this, body, this temple, three days I'll raise up, is that prophetic? It is. So you have prophecy from the mouth of Jesus. His disciples are with him. And he tells them, he, they listen because he's not talking to them, he's talking to these people who are questioning him. But they hear him say, destroy this temple and three days I'll raise it up. Your, body says, your Bible says this, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. What had they said? What had he said? Destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up. They recall what he said. He meant his body and they believed the scripture. Please notice, the purpose of prophecy is you hear it, you see it fulfilled and you have built your faith in God. That's the purpose of prophecy. It's consistent through the book of John. Let's go on further and I'll try and find the others for you as I go. John 12, verse 16. This is Jesus when he uh, asked his disciples, go into the town, you'll find a donkey there, you unloose it. If they ask you, why are you taking it? The master has need of, and it will happen. And that's what happened. All right? So it's a prophecy from Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. And in verse 14, John 12, verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's the prophecy. And they're doing it. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. They did it. They didn't understand it. They had no understanding of the scripture and they were actually fulfilling what scripture said. They didn't know they were doing it. What your Bible says in verse 16, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. They believed the scripture. They did it without knowing the scripture. Afterwards, after he's raised from the dead and they begin to see truths they never saw before, the scripture said this, 
We did it. He's the Messiah. He rode in on the donkey. He's the King of the Jews. It builds faith. Scripture, prophetic, fulfilled, is meant to build faith, not scepticism. They are not telling what will happen. They are describing what did happen. You go down further and it says... Verse, uh, chapter 13, John 13, verse 19. We'll read from verse 18. This is when he washed their feet and he said, one of you will um, betray me, this kind of thing. He predicts his betrayal. John 13, verse 18. He said, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now notice, I am telling you now before it happens. So is it prophetic? It is. So that when it does happen, what? You believe I am he. So what's prophecy for? When it's fulfilled, faith is built strong. We can trust the scriptures. Because we see it, it's recorded, we see it fulfilled and we say, God is trustworthy, the scriptures are absolutely trustworthy. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of prophecy. Now there are other references as you go through. Oh, there's some interesting ones, I'll, I'll take you through. And this is, uh, John 14, verse 29. He's been talking to them about the Holy Spirit and what, they will, um, what he will mean to them and, and what they will experience in their ministry. Verse 29, John 14, verse 29. He says, I have told you now before it happens. Notice why. Is it prophetic? I've told you now before it happens. Talking about the Holy Spirit, what he will mean to them, all that kind of thing. I've told you now, is that prophetic? I've told you now before it happens. Notice the reason. <coughs> so that when it does happen, what? You will believe. So what's the basis for prophecy, its purpose? Prophecy is foretelling the future under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The purpose, when it happens, you say, yes, the word of God is being fulfilled. I believe. That's the purpose. That's why when we preach the gospel, we take the Old Testament and we show them the Old Testament said this, this is its fulfillment. The justification for believing the gospel is the scriptures. That's why it's there. Paul said, he said, Christ died, he said, I delivered him first of all that which I also received. And he deals with this is most important. Christ died for our sins. How will you justify that statement, Paul? How will you justify it? It's according to the scriptures. I support it by the scriptures. That's my authority. It's not my experience. It's what the scriptures say. So we are appealing to the understanding of people, their mind. 
They can take the prophecy, you can show it's accurately fulfilled and you can't escape the conclusion this book is prophetic and it has been fulfilled exactly in Christ's first coming. So the Bible says when, when Paul preached the gospel, he said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And if you ask Paul, how do you know, Paul, Christ died for your sins? Because he wasn't there. He didn't see the cross. His understanding came from revelation from scripture. Because when, when the Lord met him on that road and God dealt with him and gave him sight after three days of blindness, immediately he was in the synagogue proving Jesus was the Messiah. Meaning he saw the scriptures, he'd seen them before, but now he understood who he was and he just took the scriptures of the Old Testament and argued the case, he is the Messiah from the scriptures. So how do you know he rose from the dead? Because you weren't there and I wasn't there when he rose from the dead. How do you know he was in the tomb for three days and three nights? How do you know his body didn't corrupt? The only justification is it's according to the scriptures. Our only authority for the message we carry is the authority, it's according to the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How shall they believe without a preacher? How shall he preach except he be sent? And we are sent to carry a message and it's a very simple message but it is supported by prophecy having been fulfilled. So as much as his first coming is that way, his second coming will be exactly the same. But it hasn't happened, therefore we have to be careful. True? All right, I'll leave it there for tonight. What I want to do in the time I have with you is deal with some of the basic values that I think the church has lost. Because we have lost our foundations, well, there's some that are, are glaring. Some people don't know whether they're male or female anymore. All right? It's glaring. And the church is bowing to the political pressure to accommodate to such thinking. That's the position, really. So when it comes to these areas like this, what has really happened in our world where we are? According to Romans 1, we have not kept God in our knowledge as creator and God has given us up to the lusts of our flesh. That is Romans 1. And that's happened. We have left the truths behind we once held as a nation. Once we had values based on some understanding of a creation and a creator, but we have left those behind and we've got no anchor anymore and we've got no foundation. And until that is restored back in, the values cannot be restored, no matter how many votes you take, yes or no or whatever it is, until the foundations are put back in and rested on, you will never change the direction we are in. That's the position. I have been in Vanuatu this year, Vanuatu has decided, it's called itself a Christian nation. And Alan Nafuki is the um, Presbyterian fellow in charge of the whole of the Vanuatu Christian churches, which is not the World Council of Churches, all right? This is a group of evangelical Protestants 
who advise the government on values. Very interesting. This is the Constitution. Right? And he's a very strong man on creation, for which I'm, but within his own church he's already got division. All right? But he is very strong and he's in charge of all this. So while I was there, they were establishing their own curriculum, their own, based on their values, not those imposed on them from outside. So it was very interesting. So we had one big meeting, one before I left, where the parliament, parliamentarians were present, all the pastors of the evangelical churches were present, and the whole of the educated, those with curriculum, were present to discuss through what should be in that curriculum, why it should be in there, and what they're going to do about it. Because they're going to face the opposition of all the aid that they're going to get in. So they have been left with making finally a decision of what they're going to put in. But they do have opportunity. And when you had Don Batten here, all right, Don was with us in Vanuatu, he came for a week, and he addressed them all, and he said, you have 10 years and 10 years only, maybe less, before you can turn around what has already taken place in Vanuatu. And that's the position. I don't know what will happen. We will wait and see. But these kind of people have been pressured from the Western world to conform to the values of the Western world. And they've come out of darkness. Only some of them still have not been reached in Vanuatu. So you have this just coming out of darkness and imposed on the whole education system in the government schools is the whole of this theory we came from monkeys. So what happens, and I have students, I will ask them, I have, would have them down to a meal and t tell me, when you, I asked them their history about school. Uh, so I had one from up the north of Santo, way up in the north of Santo Island, and he went down to Luganville, which was the main town on Santo, for his high school. His father was the teacher in the village school, so he went down to Santo. And he only had enough money to get to form four just then, and he had to leave. But he said, I love science. And he said, my teacher taught me we came from monkeys. And that's standard answer. Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, that is the standard answer for every student in the government schools. So, you know what he said? He said, I began to think. So this is his reasoning. All right? He went to the teacher and he said, listen, he said, there are no monkeys in Vanuatu. How did we come from monkeys? <laughs> he's thinking through. He, he's really, you know, these, you know, young people really think things through. They ask big questions. And then he said, how is it that there are only humans all over the world, not halfway between? So he's thinking through the whole thing. You follow? I had in Papua New Guinea... I had an old man whom I got very close to. He's just a few years younger than me. And he had been in the CPIC with the mission schools. That's the schools he went to in the CPIC when the gospel came in. And he uh, was taught, and he was taught we came from creation in that mission school. But he said, then I went into the high school, and he said, I got taught about these animals and all kinds of animals, and this animal and this animal. This is where we came from. So he said, I lost all that. And I came to this. Then I went to higher education and I became a teacher to advise teachers, to teach teachers. And he said, I was given a little booklet by the Australian government, a little booklet about animals and how they change and over millions of years and 
this is we've, what we've came from, the monkeys. I said, I, he said, I took that booklet to every school and I told them what was in the booklet, I taught them that and that was what they were to teach their children and he broke down. He broke down. He said, I want to undo what I can now. He said, you see those parliamentarians that are being voted on was a week after I left the elections would take place. I taught them and I taught them we came from monkeys. He says, they are the parliamentarians making the laws in our land now. I taught them. Do you see the effects? He, he recognised it because I'd been taking them through Genesis, all right? And he was equating everything I said, you know, and realising he taught them and these are the consequences. So there's a reality. There's only one answer, isn't there? You've got to put the foundations back. They must be put back in. And if your children don't have those foundations put back in for values, they have no basis for making decisions morally in their lives. It's what God says in his word. It's absolute in its authority. So what I've told you tonight is that it has literally been fulfilled, as with Israel, and we're watching Israel come back, it has literally been fulfilled. We, <coughs> we deliberately forget or we willfully ignore creation and the flood. The two things that are stripped out of our whole knowledge of all our young people. And if you do that, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the result. So is it important? Very so if we can go through in the next night and on Sunday, I'll open out, I trust, some of the riches of what we have lost because we have not stayed with the foundations. God bless you. Thank you very much.